0: Recording the 10th Annual Santa Barbara Writers' Conference. This is tape number 22. Alex Haley presents Before and After Roots. As usual, we are starting right on time. My my watch says 8 o'clock. We are going to cut through uh, a lot of the usual formalities. Just to remind you that uh, tomorrow morning we have workshops. Uh, as usual 9 to 12. Uh, tomorrow afternoon is a panel moderated by francis halpern on writers problems which will take up everything from how to conduct yourself on a talk show to uh, what um, help you need from a lawyer word processing writer's block we have all the problems and uh, uh, we will discuss them with you Uh, tomorrow evening We have a very serious and philosophic discussion. Uh, I think it may be over the heads of many of you, so if you're not on the alert and if you're not very receptive to deep thinking, uh, maybe you should think twice about coming. But our guest uh, tomorrow night is Jonathan Lindsay. And then Friday, if we live. Friday, if we live, we have an award ceremony at nine, nine o'clock. My watch still says eight. Uh, at nine o'clock, and everyone is on the road by 11. So, um, they're chock full of awards for best camper and best tennis player and all the things like that. Um, I, before I do my usual chore of introducing the introducer, uh, I have promised uh, to relate two uh, stories having to do with Alex Haley. Uh, one is a story that Barnaby Conrad asked me to please tell you. Uh, that is that when Niels Mortensen, who was a partner of Alex Haley, eventually directed him towards Louis Blau, uh, who was representing Barnaby, uh, and Alex Haley went into Blau's office, and Blau said, you, I have about ten minutes' time, because uh, I've got other appointments, and tell me quickly what you want. And four hours later, uh, he turned to Alex Haley and he said, If you can write the story that you've told me, it will change the world. And it did, and it has. <laughs> the other story is in a slightly different. Someone came up to Bill Downey tonight and handed him a note, It said, Mr. Downey, walking in here a little late for this afternoon's lecture, I saw a man who I thought was you. He looked familiar. Understandable, because I haven't seen you for years. I told him my father, Gil Johnson, said hello, and the man replied, well, tell him I say hello. <laughs> walking in, I saw you at the podium, and I realized I had just told Alex Haley my father said hello. <laughs> I... I can't wait to get home and tell my father. <laughs> in, in the interests of turning the other cheek, good showmanship, uh, and an opportunity to ask for a return performance, we have asked tonight that the lady who was introduced by Alex Haley this afternoon, Daniel Steele, introduce him. And I'd like, therefore, to introduce once again the lady who charmed all of us this afternoon, Daniel Steele. Danielle Steele. Now I'm back. at the real me, a lady named Danielle Traina. And I'm here to talk about one of my very, very favorite people and my very best friend. You all know what he does and how well he does it. And once in a while, very rarely in a lifetime, you meet someone so special that a big piece of your soul goes out to them and stays there forever. And Alex is that kind of person for me. He's my dearest friend. He's one of the most special people in the world. And we're very lucky that he's here tonight. Thank you. glad John Triana's understanding, because every time <laughs> been, we're always hugging each other, he just then seems to understand we just love each other, and that's great. Um, I was uh, sort of thinking when we walked in here tonight that uh, I just never really, honestly, truly can quite get used to the sort of different position of um, being now. Sitting at desk, uh, standing up talking about uh, writing before people who write because um, for, for so long uh, I used to dog-ear the Writer's Digest and the other magazines and find every time I could that there was a writer's conference or whatever sort within range that I could get to and sit somewhere always near the back and look at the people standing up there talking and feel a kind of vicarious something, but never really did seriously think it would ever happen to me as such. I I guess I thought that uh, if I kept plugging, to which I was very, very devoted, I would be able to write magazine articles such as that. But I just never thought in terms of books, and that just kind of came as a surprise. Some of the things... And I have no plan, no no uh, uh, notes, everything I will talk of, whatever I'll talk about just be off the top of my head, trying to communicate and share with us as colleagues writers so much that Danielle said this afternoon was in my own experience just absolutely right on target. Just uh fucking some of them from air, I know she was saying that you know, being a writer doesn't mean that you necessarily have sold or you're a bestseller or you're this, as the fact that you're writing. And, and I would only add one word to it, that you are seriously writing. That is what makes you a writer. And you are no more a writer because you are a uh, one to whom some label can be applied as a, a successful or a bestseller or something than one who has not sold anything at all. I, I think that maybe... In a crazy way, I think maybe I wrote for myself. I was writing a little bit better before I began to sell regularly than I have ever written since I began to sell regularly. I was writing more hungry, and everything meant more. Just uh, today is uh, what is today? Is, uh, uh, well, whatever day. Yesterday I was in New York, and um, <laughs> and. and uh, <laughs> Germany. I leave in the morning at six forty five. but uh yesterday I was in New York and I was talking with a friend, a, a uh, magazine editor and uh, he he uh said, What have you got for Thanksgiving? And I said, um, well, let me think a minute. And I was desperately thinking, What have I got for Thanksgiving? And I thought about an article That I tried to write I guess it must have been 15 years ago when I was uh, uh, not long out of service and I told him as if it had just come to me as a burst of inspiration that um, and this was very true that when I was in the Coast Guard one Thanksgiving I was a cook and every Thanksgiving and Christmas meant cooking a lot of turkeys and uh, We had cooked the turkeys and they had eaten them and everything and it was about sundown and we were out in the uh, uh, Gulf Stream and it was pretty. It was pretty and it was about just starting to get darkish and I was walking on the fantail of the ship, the stern of the ship and just kind of walking around and had my apron on, my little cook's hat on and I began to think, well, this is Thanksgiving. And in that subjective way that we all will do, I, I began to just kind of do stream of consciousness, well, thanksgiving, what to give thanks, and what do you give thanks for. And one thing led to another, and this was all just me. And it finally occurred to me that maybe people could give, ought to give thanks to people in our own lives who had done things for us in the course of our lives. And I began to think about three people who had done a great deal for me, but I'd never had bothered really to just thank them. And that was my own father, my own grandmother, and a teacher named Professor Nelson, who'd been very vital in my early life, all these in Tennessee. And I went back down the hold of the ship that night, and I sat down and feeling very embarrassed that i never had bothered to sit down and either verbally or on paper say thank you to them. I wrote to each of them a thank-you letter for the things they'd done for me, and I mailed them when we got to court. Within the next few weeks, quite by contrast with the guilt I had felt for writing the letters this late, I got from these three people so close to me three of the most heartwarming, touching, beautiful letters I guess I have ever gotten in my life. And it was very moving to me that they reacted the way they did because I had just thanked you for all they had done for me. And then I began to, I got a phrase, kind of came out of that called, the power of thank you. And then with the phrase, I began to write to some uh, big department stores like Macy's, New York, or uh, Gimbel's and all, and ask the personnel people <coughs> if they had any commentary on people who, as employees, Received voluntary thanks from customers. And I got back unanimous responses that, in fact, most of the people who got advanced, a very, single, a very uh, a singular factor in their being advanced was that customers had written voluntary letters thanking them for the service they had received from them as salesmen, and so forth and on. it just kind of grew like a little amoeba. And I wrote this piece, I fiddled with it, and I never sold it. It just sort of laid there, and it's it's laying somewhere now. I don't know where it is, but I thought of it yesterday when this guy called me, and so I sort of told him about it. Without mentioning I had written it 15 years ago. And he said, great. So I can tell you, and I kind of look forward to it myself, uh, the power of thank you or some such title will appear in parade thanksgiving issue, And I kind of look forward to it. It's kind of nice, you know. It was... It's, for me, sort of like the old fire horse thing. I started out writing articles. I never wrote a word for a newspaper. I just happened to start writing for magazines. And I loved, I did love and do love occasionally now, doing pieces for magazines. And um, that was one that gave me a particular thrill just because it was something that had been, you hear these stories about something you did way, way back and one day it'll come to light and you can use it and it does seem to happen that way accepting that it doesn't at least in my experience it doesn't seem to be something that you can go back and resurrect as it was but the idea will prove sound and i have found things uh, happen to me now that uh, say something i wrote as far back as 20 years ago the fundamental idea was sound, and now it happens that over the years i have been exposed to more, I have learned more about how you present ideas and things. I I don't know how many of you were here uh, this afternoon, uh, but I'd like to share with those of you who were not a a person we talked about this afternoon. Lou, Lou stand up and let me see what we talk about. Lou, that's, yeah. Yeah. That is Louis, and he just told us today, his middle name is Cecil. He never tells anybody that, but Louis Blau. Uh, and Louis Blau presides over uh, uh, Lobin Lobin, uh, uh, a big major legal firm in, in uh, uh, Los Angeles, and Danielle and I are fortunate enough to be his immediate personal clients. <clears throat> I think there are 88 lawyers in his firm. And I don't care what you've got, they've got some specialty lawyers that do it. And um, he is a person who is a sort who, if you are creative, he kind of has a divining thing about what you're doing. And we go in, those of us who create, I have sit with him with Mal- Walter Mastow, who can be like vinegar personified, and who is very, he fumbles and makes noises around Lou, but he's listening to what Lou's telling him about advice, about things, truthful, uh the 2001, uh, what's his name, the guy, director that, here uh, yeah, Kubrick, Lou goes over to see him in England, and especially he has this international practice among people in, in, in uh, creative fields, and it's a privilege, it really is, to be a client of such a person, and we go, those of us who are his clients, go to him with our problems, which often are in the area of not so much plotting something, but concepts of something. If I have a big, big idea, something I want to do, I will invariably call Lou and say, can we have lunch? And then we'll just sit down and talk about it, and he, he will talk about this and that and the other, because he's done pictures for so many, many years, and been involved in I, I God only knows how many motion pictures Lou Blau has helped shape and create and bring into being. And uh, so, when Danielle and I talk about him in the way that we do it's kind of like you never can quite decide what particular role does he play in your life but it becomes a, a very major shaping guiding role and that together with being your friend and it's a, it's a very special thing and anyway I was um, talking with Lou about this book that didn't even at that time have it certainly didn't have the title root I hadn't half finished it I had—I uh, was telling this afternoon, i just repeat it, I had been speaking somewhere up in Seattle. And this was the time, that now seems hard to believe, but it was a time when really um, things were just tough. I mean, I sometimes I didn't know where the rent was coming from half the time or something like that. And uh, I was speaking in Seattle, I remember very well somebody was paying me $200 to speak, and I was off to Seattle like a shot to make that $200. And a reporter wrote a column about what I had talked about, which was the early research that I was trying to do into my family. And then some people at a television station read the column, liked the idea, and they had the press in, and they came and sent a message they'd like to talk to me, and they offered me, Luke Reckham this afternoon, $15,000 for the world rights to roots, or to whatever it was. Now, in my condition, the 15000 was very enticing. But I had had an experience on a smaller scale before that made me wary and the only people I knew in the world at that time who knew anything about things like this were Niels Mortensen and Barnaby Conrad. And so I called them up. And Niels said, why don't you get in contact with Barney's agent, uh, uh, Louis Blau, in uh, Los Angeles. And then I talked to Barney. Barney said, "Fine with me." He said, "I don't know if he'll talk to you, but I will give you his phone number, and you can say I gave it to you." And so I did. And that's how I got to Lou. And then it was I who brought Danielle to Lou, and Al Toffler, who wrote Future Shock and others. And it's kind of like a lovely little family thing. It just works that way. But Lou was the one when I went to him after Nielsen Barney had had guided me to him. Heard me talking about. The research, really. I I didn't have a story to tell him. I just told him the research I was trying to do. And it was true that he had a 10-minute space for me, and it did extend into some hours. And um, uh, then at the end of it, he talked about what I was trying to do in conceptual terms, a way I never had thought about this book. And he predicted that if I would be able to finish it, that it would do extremely well. So much so that I just couldn't believe what I was hearing. And I remember years later, down the line, a funny kind of thing, I was in Jamaica finishing the book, and um, uh, Lou had a deal going with, I think it was Columbia. wasn't it, Columbia Pictures first. And so I got a message to come to Los Angeles so we could talk about this deal. And I went there and given my resources i was staying in a hotel way up on sunset and i talked with lou and he was sort of planning what we were going to say and all that and then just as i was walking out of his office we had everything together he 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 said oh oh, by the way where are you staying and i told him and he came up from behind his desk he said get out of there if you move into Beverly Wilshire. With the money we're gonna ask, you cannot afford to be caught in that hotel. So So, you know, <laughs> so I moved into the Beverly Wiltshire. Let me tell you, honey, it's a long way from hitting Tennessee to the Beverly Wiltshire. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I sort of just i am hop skipping about some of little things and I'm not going to talk a lot because I'd much rather as same as Daniel respond to questions if I may it gives the advantage of I'm talking directly to something someone asked and also that uh, I feel and I hope you feel a better sense of interaction with all of us um, one of the things that kind of thrilled me now I look back there was a big full page there the other day in the New York Times, I think it was in the LA Times, and doubtless other papers that Playboy had about its interviews, and it talked about the interviews from 1962 to forward, and I was so pleased that it was I who had begun those interviews, quite by accident. I had no more dream of that than the man in the moon. Um, The way it happened was that I had been working for a completely the opposite kind of magazine, Reader's Digest. I had, we were talking this afternoon about the editor friend, Carol Rogers, used to be at the Reader's Digest, and I would write a story, send it in, I would walk up to 42nd Street and put it in the courier mail, and, uh, yes. and um, uh, they would take it there in the morning, and I'd sit by my phone the next afternoon, I'd wait for it to ring, And if it rang, and I picked it up, and I heard someone sniffling, and I knew I'd sold it. It was Carolyn Rogers, who was very soft and very uh, sentimental. And I would write these, you know, stories with a mother, and a tear, and this, and that, and the other. And she would start crying if she liked it. And if I heard her crying over the phone, I, I knew the rent was paid. Everything was fine, you know. And anyway, from that background, I got this offer from Playboy, to do an article about Miles Davis. I didn't know anything about Miles Davis. I was from Henning, Tennessee. From that 20 years in the U.S. Coast Guard, I was square as a block. I didn't know anything about jazz musicians. And I couldn't understand why in the world they would get me, uh, ask me to do it. But I was ecstatic at the opportunity to work with this burgeoning, new, exciting magazine. And quickly I found out why they had given me such a break. That Miles despised writers. Wow. He simply wouldn't talk to writers. He, 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 I went down the way he was playing, he would, once he, I was pointed out to him as a writer, he would just glare at me and walk right around, walk in the place, never speak. I went to his, his home. His, his wife, Frances told me, very nice of you to try, but no way, he just won't deal with you. I went to various people, finally, to his lawyer. Harold Levett was his name, and I had found out Harold Levett was from Tennessee. And I went to him and pulled out this fellow Tennessee boy's bit on him. And, and Harold told me that not only was I not going to get the story, but I was lucky I hadn't gotten hurt because Miles was almost as good a prize fighter as he was a trumpet player. And in the course of delivering this dire warning, he told me where Miles trained, uh, Wiley's Uptown Gym on 135th Street in Harlem. I was desperate, and this is the thing about writing, is you have to be kind of, I don't know if the proper word necessarily is desperate, but you just have to have a kind of passion that you, in a quiet way, are going to do it. You don't care what, how, when, whatever, you're going to do it. And I had that sort of feeling. I, I had to do this article. And uh, I went to Clines to on the square, and I bought some gym gear. And I went up, and I enrolled in the gym for six months, so they couldn't put me out. And sure enough, as people had said, Miles turned up at the gym. He came up in his silver-gray Ferrari. The story on the Ferrari, just a little sidebar, was that the story was that he had been walking one day in Times Square, and in that cacophony of sounds, he heard one horn in B-flat, a key he particularly loves. He turned and saw it was a Ferrari, and he went and bought him one that afternoon. You know, And... Uh, <laughs> And um, in any event, Miles came in, he he put on a powder blue rubber sweatsuit, and he moved like a race around these things, a little bag up there that you do this, he did that, and he did all the things that you do, and I'm watching him, and after a while he spotted me, and I was over by that great pendulous bag that you see pictures of the heavyweight champions with, and I was doing not my thing at all, you know, and it was very evident. And so, he came up, and with a sardonic look in his eye, he nodded to the ring, and the gesture was clear. Get in the ring, or no hope. And I desperately wanted to get that story, so I got in the ring with him. And uh, I, he didn't really hurt me, he peppered me a good deal, you know, like right back of the neck, but I taught him a whole lot about clinching. And... Um, <laughs> and <laughs> And, <laughs> and when we got done, we went and there's a convention in the gym when you finished fighting. You were both shower, and there's some about two guys under Jason Showers, not terribly formal, and we began to talk a little. And then it turned out Miles was really underneath his truculence. He was really kind of curious about me. He had never met a black writer working for these kind of magazines and all that and so forth, and he asked about it, and I said, you know, yeah, uh, that I was. and. And he invited me in the car. He took me down to his home on West 77th Street, which was a Greek Orthodox church that had gone out of business. And he bought it and turned it into his house. And uh, he's a very wealthy jazz musician. And uh, so we became friends over a period of time. And it was a fascinating time. I had from the magazine 6,000 words in six weeks. The six weeks went by like a magic carpet. Now with him, being carried with him, all the places he went, the top man in jazz, and the just fantastic Aladdin's lamp-like world of the king of jazz, as he used to call himself, the Prince of darkness. the places we went, the people we met, the things they said, the things I saw. Fascinating. The only trouble was, and I was making notes of all this, of course, the only trouble was Miles' monosyllabic. He just simply doesn't talk much. A, a, a case in point, he loved to cook. If you were maybe a good friend of his and you'd be at home maybe one afternoon by six thirty, 30, your telephone would ring and you'd pick it up and say hello and a voice would say chili and hang up. And the, tra- <laughs> and, and the translation was that Miles had cooked chili and you should come over and have some. And, uh, he, he, all his communication was like that. And at the end of the six weeks, when we desperate to get in the magazine, I simply knew, as any practice writer knows, looking in my notebook, I did not have enough quotable dialogue, no way, to do 6,000-word stories. You couldn't pad, you couldn't fudge. you couldn't mess with these editors because they were much too keen, much too sharp, And I was really scared, what am I going to do, because I didn't want to blow this opportunity. And it finally came to me in a kind of a desperation thing. And when I look back, it seems to me almost every really important pivotal point in my life has been something seemingly accidental. I got to thinking that I was going to take a big chance, that the world of the top jazz man I had met with him seemed to me just as exciting as anything he had said. So I took the 6,000 words they had allotted me for Q&A, and I split it in half, 3,000 for q and A. I had enough quotable quotes for that. But then I just wrote the best I could. I must have rewritten that thing 15 times, a kind of an essay that I tried to give the five-dimensional, five-sense quality of the world I had met moving around at night in the and young with Miles Davis in the world of the King of Jazz. And so I wrote that thing 3,000 words, then I took the quotes I had, and now I discovered that the problem with the quotes was that they were never connected. Everything was sort of like its own thing. And the only way I could make any sense of them, I discovered, was just okay, let them be individual quotes, but I made up a question that a quote would answer. (laughs) And then, then so I filled up the other 3,000 words with questions and these quotes to answer. And I sent the whole packet off with fear and trepidation. It really was that, too, Playboy. And they were really pretty dubious, because this was a, you know, a, not a, a, a... It was a new thing. And, but they were so close on deadline, they had to go with it. And they did go, and, and the readers came in and really loved it. And that is how what we now know as the Playboy Interview form was born. You know, it opens up with the exposition and goes into the q and A. And it was just... You tell, the there, you tell about the no, no. It's my mentor over here. Uh, <laughs> um, Rockwell was, I guess, of the numerous people whom I interviewed at Playboy, he was, I don't have to guess, he was easily the most exhilarating of the interviews. Rockwell was George Lincoln Rockwell, the head of the Nazi Party in this country. And how that came about was that after the uh, Davis interview started the Playboy interview, and I did a couple of others. They, You know, the magazine was expanding, so they gave me the title of Chief Interviewer. And what that really meant was that uh, if more than one subject came up at once, I would have my choice of which one I want, then somebody else could do the other. And they didn't do this on purpose, I know. It just happened that, you know, Playboy was looking for kind of Controversial subject areas and all, and they decided they were going to do that particular kind of way-out school of what might be called politics. They decided they were going to interview the head of the Ku Klux Klan and the head of the American Nazi Party, and they called me and said, "You got your choice." And I said, well, <laughs> "You know, <laughs> yeah," and, uh, and I said, "Well, you know, thanks a hell of a lot. You know, I really appreciate that." And then I got to thinking about the thing clinically that really from the point of view of myself as a writer and from them as a magazine, who could I probably do the better interview with? And I did a little cursory research on both gentlemen. And from what I could find of the man who was in charge of the Klan, I couldn't find very much that I could seem to relate to at all. (laughs) And and it wasn't so much about his personality, I wasn't so concerned about that, but I was concerned about his background. And it didn't have a whole lot that I could find to, to hang on to type thing. And then I found in the case of Rockwell notwithstanding I didn't agree with anything he said Rockwell had finished Brown University he was a lieutenant commander in the United States Navy, a jet pilot commanded a squadron a jet squadron and whatever else might be said you can't be entirely stupid and do those things. So that was at least something to work with. And I got, I I told him I would, you know, opt for Rockwell. And then I was in New York with Rockwell. They gave me his number and everything. He was in Virginia. And I telephoned him. The thing at was once the assignment is made, it's up to the writer to take it from there. So I telephoned him. And I'm talking very crisp and business as I can. And I explained that we would like to interview him. And that, uh, he came back also very crisp and business and said that uh, he didn't know about this. You couldn't trust these magazines. You'd have to think about it. He called back. He did call back. By this time it was night. And he said, uh, I think I'll take a chance. He said, now, do I correctly understand that if I do this, it will be you doing the interview? I said, yes, sir. He said, I must ask you a very personal question. I said, yes, sir. He said, are you a Jew? I said, no, sir. And and then he made up the plan, the logistics, when I should come and all that. And, uh, (laughs) oh, I tell you. And I turned up, you're talking about some shock knocks. Because that was the the last thing in the world they ever had in mind. But it it turned out to be a very exhilarating session because it was a case, it taught me something that's really, really very important again in writing. And that was that um, he later said, and I felt very good, that he said that it was the best interview ever done of him. And what it taught me was that when you are in the position of journalist, that your personal feeling, your subjective, emotional feeling, have no place in what you write. That what your job is is to translate that person to the reader, without your personal prejudices, be whatever they may. I didn't agree with a syllable that Rockwell agreed with. In fact, it was kind of some things that happened were kind of funny. Like you know, he had. He, he, I found the man really kind of astounding for the for the. Uh, training that he had, the brains he had, the background he had. He had fixed phobic images of certain groups of people that were astonishing to me. For instance, he saw Jewish people who his first hate as just some kind of caricatures of an order I could hardly describe. I don't know what he really thought about them. His second target was black people. And I know he saw black people as kind of modified orangutans in general. And and it sort of came out at one point when he was uh, talking. He talked rather rapidly. And I was scribbling in a notebook. And I couldn't quite keep up with him going like he was going. So I saw he had this old IBM electric. And I said, pardon me, Commander, would you mind if I use your typewriter? And he looked at me with genuine astonishment. That man knows I'm a writer. And he said, that's that's an electrical typewriter <laughs> and I said I, I know sir I have two at home but that didn't seem to register and he finally dubiously said well I, I guess so and I went on you know how you can do on type, you don't ever do it in reality I got on that thing and I just showed out you know <laughs> all you know and it was <laughs> and we went on through the thing and it, 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 uh, it turned out to be as I say a very exhilarating interview because it had a quality of tension about it, but it was, the, the tension was mostly in the thing of, of, of his concept. And uh, it drew the biggest male, at least up to that time, that Playboy had had from an interview. Um, you know, something subsequent to that interview I thought I might add be of interest to you was, I was telling someone this afternoon, the... Uh, uh, in the 1969, Hugh Hefner, who's a just marvelous guy, and one of the things I love so much about Hugh is he never forgets how people helped him do his thing. And he had a writer's conference of sorts. It wasn't like this one, but it was a writer's gathering, really, of all the writers who had helped put Playboy, who had written for Playboy since its beginning, in Chicago. He had bought that hotel next to the Playboy building. And there were, as it turned out, finally eighty four of us who came from all over, including a few from abroad, like Kenneth uh forget the Kennedy, the guy with a film critic, Louis Redhead guy he passed away not long ago, Kenneth uh Biden, right, right. And people like that, but most of them obviously from this country and there were eighty four and everybody who was among that eighty four had to be and was very, very proud to be among them because it was like A to Z, name the byline, there they were, somewhere in that 84, it was a beautiful gathering and a rare gathering of that many writers. And because there were so many writers, academic people in the area, from the University of Illinois, Chicago, whatever, flocked around because they want to interrogate all these writers, find out what makes writers tick as a group and so forth, and they were asking all manner of questions we were answering and everything. And then later they published a truncation anyway of their findings and, 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 and two of the things they came up with, I never will forget, I don't know exactly what it says, but that of that 84 top writers in the United States, four had finished college. That was one thing I remember. And um, uh, the other thing was that of the 84, I think 53 were from the U.S. South, and that was another thing. And it was kind of funny, after that finding came out, the Southerners of us, James, Dickey, a whole bunch of us, we began to clan off from the rest. <laughs> and, and to discuss what made us writers. And what we came up with was that um, we were reared in a, an atmosphere, in a region, where it is characteristic more so than in other regions that children are reared with the older people telling stories in the living room, on the front porch, and so forth, and that the children get a sense of story early. I know for myself, roots came square out of my grandmother's rocking chair when I was a little boy. You probably read or heard me talking about it. That's where it really started. And uh, uh, that's just the way it was and the way it is. And I think that most of us who are Southern tend to be probably influenced by that more than any other single thing when danielle was talking this evening I, I wanted to hug her when she was saying in response to some of the things that that uh well, they hadn't even been asked but she just volunteered that the question arises so much how do you do this how do you do this or that or the other with, with relation to writing there is no specific answer your way is your way mine is mine hers is hers Everybody has his own unique thing. It's like that mystical thing people call talk about, your style. Well, your style is simply you, what you arrive at after you work long enough. I think most of us go through phases. For a year, I was pure Hemingway, and then I was a little something else for something else. But after a while, I found out what I needed to be was me, whatever that is, and that just happens when you're sitting down there. I sit there and talk. To uh, I listened to Daniel talking about the, the, the work about the going to sleep on a typewriter and all that and that's the truth I've done it when we were at dinner I was telling about I think one of the most, my favorite memories I was working on roots like a dog I mean you've you worked to the point that you don't even think about yourself as a person anymore kind of and it's not with a sense of suffering it's just a sense of this is what I do and I love what I'm doing and if a little pain it's exquisite pain um, I was in Jamaica, it was, uh, the nights were balmy, but around one, two in the morning, it began to get quite nippy, and I would work, I would start working, I love to work at night because I started working at night, writing at night. I would write on the porch, and I had a, one of these big aluminum, that goes over a big light bulb, you know, that you can hang down and throw a lot of light. And I had that rigged up over a beam, and it came down kind of over me, and I sat there with a typewriter, and I'd write from about 8 at night. And then, I suppose around midnight, when it began to get chilly, I pulled a blanket around me and kept writing. And the picture that I wish somebody had taken, a very good photographer, I wish had been able to take the picture so I'd have it to literally look at, well, I woke up one morning, on that porch, the light still burning, at about 8 in the morning, and I was lying, just as Daniel described, my face down, pressed against the keys, sleep. I'd been asleep, and the blanket was over me like this, and the blanket was just covered with moths that had landed there during the night and had sat on me. And somehow, if I had that picture, I would treasure it so much because it would say to me more than anything I know, The way it was to become immersed, absorbed, to the point that as again Danielle was saying we were kind of communing when she was talking because she was talking about things I know so well and others among us who are writers know it so well about your characters. When your characters come right, they're as real as any of us sitting in this room. In a certain way they may be even possessed of faculties we don't even have. Uh, your characters, when they come right, will tell you exactly what they will do. And if you tell them to say something or do something that isn't in character, they'll tell you as clearly as anything in the world. No, I, I wouldn't say that. I, I won't do that, and they won't do it. They simply won't do it. I was saying a thing I'd like to do, and I look forward to doing sometime. I will do it yet. I, I just want to run, run some papers a typewriter. Now, and have, say, Kunta Kinti meet his grandson chicken george they were such totally opposite people the one the op the conservative total conservative and the other the swinger in in the parlance of the time and just see what would happen what would they say to each other and they would talk to each other on paper because the characters are drawn that finely and i guess you know i could just go on and on. I, I'll just tell you one thing, and then and I'll stop talking. I hope you ask me some questions, because obviously this has been no organized talk. This is just running your mouth, as my grandma used to say about writing. But um, the um, book I'm writing now is a book about my little hometown, Henning, Tennessee, a little town 50 miles north of Memphis. 550 people when I was there about that in the 30s. Quiet little book about how the people, uh, some of the personalities among the people, some of the things they did, and in a larger sense, I kind of like to do things which have a larger sense about them. Say like, Roots was about my family immediately, but in a larger sense it was about the story of a people, because all black people have the same story told in Roots. Everyone African village, somebody captured some slave ship, same ocean, some succession of plantations, so forth. And the case of this book about a small town, and in a small town you don't have that problem because everybody knows you to start with. And in small towns commonly, whether they be in Kansas or Maine or California or wherever, it tends to be that there are the same roles in each of those towns played out simply by different people in each town. If, for instance, I told you in Henning, Tennessee, we had a lady named Sister Scrap Scott, and she was our Associated Press. Every little town has got a lady that can spread news quicker than wireless <laughs> and so forth. And there are just a large collection of stories that I have collected. Little incidents, quiet little things, sometimes significant, sometimes funny, sometimes sad, about this little town. And they're being put together sort of like, <coughs> pardon me, pieces of, of a, I was about to say a vignette, pieces of a, uh, uh, what's that? Mosaic, precisely. Right, that's exactly what I was trying to think. We didn't have no mosaics in Henning, Tennessee. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Yeah, we did. And you know what I was just thinking this afternoon, I don't know, I'll tell you exactly what made me think about it. Lou and I went down to the room of the place that uh, Barney and Mary and Niels had for us down on the, right on the beach. And in doing so, we had to cross the railroad down there where they got these two Amtrak cars. And then Lou said one of them was a restaurant. And I looked at that thing and my mind went back and it said, Pete Goss. I shall write of Pete Goss in the book Henning, and I'm going to share with you a little anecdote, a little vignette out of the book Henning. You see, throughout the earlier part of the book, and the book is not about me so much, it's about the town at that time, I will have established that the train played a great role in uh, Henning, Tennessee. The middle of town was the Jefferson Davis Highway, asphalt, U.S. 51. The up back of that on elevated tracks was the IC line, the Illinois Central. And that was a train. That was the biggest excitement we had was the train. On weekday evenings particularly in Henning in the summers or spring or whatever when people had finished working in the fields for the day gone home had their dinner. Um, if they didn't Feel comfortable just sitting for the rest of the night like most people did and they wanted some excitement they would just get up and if anybody asked where they just say, I'm going down going downtown and they walked downtown they would stand on the Jefferson Davis highway and look up toward the elevated train track it would now be getting dusk turning into dark just about just before dark you could hear you could almost set your watch by it. A haunting whistle that came from about the town of Covington, which is seven miles distant. And people would kind of stir a little, the people who were down there looking. And then you'd wait, and after a while, they would hear another. And then in time, way up by a little town called Rialto, you could see this big cyclops eye coming out of the darkness, and a little bit bigger and bigger as it came along. And the people were staring at it and looking. And then after a while you could see this, what looked like a necklace of lights behind the cyclops. That was the cars. It was a passenger train. It was a crack train, the Panama Limited, a famous train. And then we'd stand there and the, the excitement grew greater the closer it got. And then it seemed that the cyclops came up big, big, and all of a sudden, swoosh, it went by. And then you saw the cars passing right behind, it, very rapidly. And big thrill to us was we saw, most exciting of all, was the car like the one down there this afternoon, Lou, was the dining car. And here we are, standing down this asphalt highway, little country people, little kids especially, barefooted and all, George Sims, Arthur, all of us, standing down there, looking up, and we see this car go with these, look like crystal windows. Inside which we saw people literally seated at tables with red felt tablecloths over top of which were white tablecloths And on the tables we could all get all this in a glimpse were China silver glasses that seemed to sparkle and All the people sitting there were white they were eating and among them are standing almost stately by them with a white thing on his arm These tall, stately, black waiters. And the trains, and they were gone. And it looked like they were on the way to Mars. To (laughs) us, you know. And it just sort of conjured up something to us. That that was the beyond. That was exotica. And then together with that, there was the freight train. There were all kinds of trains. But all I'm saying is that I will, throughout the book, kind of, if I say so, artfully plant that the train played a great role with us. Which it did. And then somewhere along later, I'm going to tell you about the guy. I thought about it the thing when we looked at that car this afternoon. You see, periodically, people would leave the town. The greatest migration ever occurred in the United States in the world. As a matter of fact, internal migration that occurred in the world was here in the United States between World Wars One and Two, from the U.S. South to the North. Principally of blacks, but not too much unlike, uh, also a great many whites, but it was principally most contracted blacks where they would grow up into teenage and they, 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 you know, there was the cotton and this and the hard work and everything and the rumors came down that up north all these marvelous social wonders just things you couldn't believe and I remember when a rumor came down up somewhere called Detroit, a man named Mr. Henry Ford was paying $5 a day and nobody could believe that. And people began to go north, they would catch the train. I have a session in that called, uh, 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 I think, I, I think I call it going north or something like that. But anyway, it's a story of a boy named Willie, a young man named Willie. And they announced it in church that everybody know, young brother Willie is going to be going north two weeks hence. And the thing was, there was a train that stopped in town every weekday. Nobody ever caught that train. Because you waited for Sunday when there was a train that had to be flagged down. That was much more dramatic. The tr- station maggot had to go out and wave a yellow flag, and it'd make the train stop, and then you'd get on it. And the people, f- would church would let out early, and everybody was there, and Willie was there, and he had a, had a, 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 a paper, pressed paper suitcase, as they called it, and he had under his arm invariably white shoe boxes tied with white string inside which always were fried chicken devil's egg and sweet potato pie and um, and the bootlegger always gave him a little half pint flask and he's ready to go and then somebody would when the train stopped they would get him on and he would be great intense hugging and kissing of people who were sort of friends first and work up to his grandmother and his mother and that was just almost like shouting in church the intensity of that and then he'd get on the train, and he'd lean out of the side. If somebody was sitting on that side, they'd give him a seat. And as the train went, sh, pull it off, he'd lean out and wave a white handkerchief as the train started to pull off. And then the people would just be crying. And they say, bye, Willie. Write me, Willie. Now, they know Willie can't write,
1: but it don't matter, you know, and
0: all that. And Willie was on his way. Willie was all his way up north. And the the thing that had spread all over the South through at that time was the expression was go north and do good. And what they really didn't know that up north was cold, mechanized, another kind of culture, a hard culture. And I have a session where after a couple of years, a Willie or some of them come back and in the privacy of home, he tells his mother something like, Mama, it, it ain't like down here. People starve to death up there. People don't care nothing about you up there like they do down here, and such as that. Well, you just kind of tell it through metaphor. But anyway, such a young man was Pete Goss. He left home when he was about 17. He was one of about five children. His mother lived up on the lane, as we call it, in a little shack house where they'd all been raised. Um, and it would happen that when somebody went north after a couple of years Uh, For a couple years after a few months people so other people already up north from the little town would you know make contact and There was a grapevine they saw so-and-so from such-and-such And so from such and such and would get back home that they were doing this they had a job in a car Washer he had a job in a hotel or doing something and it would get back home and Word finally came back after a good while that Pete Goss had gotten a job working in a restaurant and then the next report that came back was that Pete Goss had met somebody who worked on a train. It wasn't the Panama Limited. It didn't have to be the Panama Limited to or any train. He worked in the kitchen on a train. And then a rather disturbing note came after a while. It was that Pete Goss, when people from home would see him, were well, actually stuck up, kind of. He didn't seem like he wanted to talk to nobody from home. It seemed like he was too good for folks from from home. And that didn't settle too well with the home folk. But, You know, anything might happen to somebody in the big city. People would go up north and come back home, acting all proper like they call them, hog, hog, and dog, dog, and all these kind of funny things. And so people would allow for somebody to be up north. Curious things might happen to them. And it went on, and finally the word came that Pete had become a waiter on a train. And the train he was on was running to Florida. And this went on for years. He never came back home over a long period of time. And the story I shall tell, Pete had been gone away for 15 years. He left as, as, as a man of about 17. He'd gone about 15 years before he returned to see his mother. And, this, and when, you returned, when you came into Henning, Tennessee, and you got off the train or the bus or whatever you got off, people spotted you the minute you stepped off, and somebody followed you with their eyes to your destination. Nobody just walked around in, in any little town. People knew exactly who he was because they knew him when he was growing up. But they, nobody said anything to him because of the way he looked and acted. He was no longer, he didn't even look like Henning. He was dressed formally like a banker: Dark suit, Humberg hat, high collar, tie, shoes with, with, with big laces on them. And he strode like a Roman senator. And people watched him. They knew where he was going. He was going up the street, going up to see his mama. They were on the lane. But nobody said anything to him, nor did he say anything to about it. it was as if he was a stranger. And he went on up to see to the house where he had left 15 years before. And then the story later was told by his mother to some of her friends. That She said she loved her boy. Sure, she loved her boy. But she just didn't know how to act with him he just wasn't somebody she'd do too good he was so different he was uncomfortable we know and so was she uncomfortable and he walked in the house this day, and he sat on in the front room didn't have a three rooms the front room the kitchen and the bedroom and she was say you know glad to see him she'd hugged him in the conventional way kissed him and boy i'm so glad to see you and everything and he took his head off at least and finally he was uncomfortable enough, he took his coat off and put it on the back of the chair. And this gave her courage enough that she asked him, would he like some tea or coffee? And he said he'd take some tea. So she jumped up relieved to be able to do something and went in the kitchen to boil the water for some tea. And now feeling badly that he was sitting there, he got up and walked in his shirt to the kitchen door. (coughs) And he looked upon her at the stove. It was a stove that she'd cooked the meals for them on when he was a little boy. Except that 15 years it intervened. I don't know how many of you from the South of where you seen this old black cast iron wood burning stove. And 15 more years it worked on this stove. It was now kind of canted. One leg had broken and firewood was under to keep it up where it belonged. The, 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 the oven door was kind of askew the way those stoves get. The chimney was being held together by some bob some not barb, baling wire, hung from the ceiling to keep it in balance, and it was just there, kind of together. And there was a crack in it where the water, hot water heater thing, was on the side, so it wouldn't heat water anymore. And he looked at this stove, and the thing was, he grew up looking at that stove, but now he looked at it with new eyes. And the story went that he turned around, with her still fixing the tea, and he picked his coat off the chair, put his coat on and reached for his hat, and just told her, I'll be back in a few minutes, and left her there with her mouth open. She didn't know where he had gone or whatever, he didn't say. He strode downtown, he walked down to Henning Supply Company, right on the corner, And the story now is picked up by Jim Ingham, who was a black fellow who delivered things for Jim, for for the Henning Supply Company, who was in the back and who never missed much of anything. Uh, Pete Goss walked in, in his black suit, and walked up to the store man who was white and and said to him, uh, I'd like to see your cooking stoves. And the man doesn't quite know what to make of Pete looking and acting like he acts. But he hadn't done anything, so he indicated the cooking stoves over that way, and Pete strode over there, and he looked at them, and then Pete said to him, which is your best one? And the man indicated the best one. And Pete then said to him, how much is it? And the man told him. I think it was $38.25 or something like that at the time. And Jim Ingham said that he, from around the corner, watched Pete run his hand in his pocket and pull out a roll and count off thirty eight dollars or whatever it was and give it to that man and said i, I i'd appreciate it if you could have it delivered up to my mother's this afternoon as soon as possible and turned around and walked out now it was delivered as soon as possible jim ingham delivered it and um, when the man went back up there before jim got there He walked into his mother's kitchen, again took his coat off, and his mother told the story that he bent down, picked up this stove with his two hands, wrenched it up from the floor, wrenched it again to wrench it loose from the pipes, holding it like this, walked to the kitchen door, and raised it and threw it as far as he could out into the yard, where it landed with a sickening lurch and crunch. And there it was. It had it. And then when Jim Ingham brought the other stove, they put the stove in, and there it was. Now, the word spread like wildfire in a town like any. It, it was a Friday when this happened. By Sunday, when people came from all out the country to church, and after church, they couldn't wait for church to get over. to just seemed to need to saunter up the lane. And they would go up, and they kind of cut, cut through the back into... Miss Goss's yard, Sister Goss we called her. And they just stand there and they'd look at that stove. It was standing there. And there were comments, and I shall try to tell this story in this book, obviously much shorter than I've told it here, but in a very kind of quiet way. So you kind of feel and see what the dynamics of what was going on. And the people looked at it and they would make statements like, he sure thought it didn't he? <laughs> and uh, so forth and so on. And, and that stove, To this day lies there, and that's been 30 years ago, and that stove is right today, right there in that same place where it landed when he threw it. And I don't know how many cumulatively thousands of people over the period of time have come and just looked at it, knowing the story, and what I sort of am thrilled about with is what that stove represents. It was kind of like every mother's son had done that for her. It was to all the blacks in town, it was heroic that he had come in, he'd done well, he he had been able to walk down there, and everybody was telling the man, I'll give you 50 cents now and 25 cents Saturday. He said how much and put his roll and paid him all of it and had it delivered. It was triumph across the board, and it was kind of a story. It is kind of a story. It had lots of insights. I haven't even figured out all of them for myself yet. But it's the kind of anecdote that Henning, I hope, this book Henning, will have a lot of. that. just gives us some kind of pause to think, to reflect, so forth. I am writing it. I am black. It will be mostly about the black side of town simply because that's the part I know most about. We didn't know a lot about the white people. In fact, we had, you know, contrary to some of the awful things that we read and heard about the racial relations and they were awful indeed in in lots of places, I, I really lived in a situation where we had, I, I will kind of twit white people in some cases in this book, because uh, we really used to have fun at white people's expense. We knew, for instance, we used to go to white people's church, not in the church, they wouldn't us in the church, but we'd go sit out back at the church. And I'm sure that they thought we were out there to taste of the religion of that. We were out there laughing at how pitiful the singing was <laughs> in, in that church, you know. That's what it was. It, it's the truth. And we would do that all the time. We knew they couldn't cook because they were hiring us to cook <laughs> and so forth. And, 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 and there, there were just lots of little things that went on among the, the, the people. And I know there, there used to be a thing about blacks relative to whites around that. I will not be telling you on all this so you know how end things. But uh, they used to say, as long as you just let white folks get out front, then just go on, they can do, you can do anything you want. Just let them get out in front and go on and you get behind and do it what you want to do, and that was a principle that was followed there and so forth, but it would be, I think, a kind of tender, wistful, touching, I hope it will be these things, book about a little town in the United States of America, seen uh, by a writer with an obvious love of where he grew up, care for where he grew up, and it will end with a little section called Henning 40 Years Later Revisited and then the the jarring, jarring difference that anybody would meet if he goes back home or she goes back home 40 years later, and so forth. I have talked and talked, and as you see, I just talk aimlessly. So why don't I stop here, and if anybody's got a question, let's ask that, and and whenever it's time for us to quit. And I should tell you this, too, before we go on, that I said to some people, I have, um, as soon as we get done tonight, Lou and I will be right in his car and right back to Los Angeles because... I have a flight at 6.45 in the morning to Hamburg, Germany, and I really got to make it So, uh, and maybe get two or three hours sleep in the interim. So let's go with the questions, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, okay. did I leave the town about I guess the first time I really left was around 12 but I would come back every summer my dad was a professor and we went with him wherever he was teaching and then we would come back to grandma's that's what we always look forward to. you know I've got a little piece I'm doing somewhere about grandparents I, I love the thing of, of I think that one of the saddest things that's happening in our technological push-button, whip-whip age now, instant gratification, is that more and more little children are being reared, raised, without closeness in proximity to grandparents. And I personally, because I was raised by my grandma, I personally believe that a child is more uh, sensitive, is more secure, has better rounded edges with exposure to grandparents. I think grandparents kind of sprinkle stardust over the lives of grandchildren. And so uh, that's really a deep feeling I have and I'm going to do something about that 1st Yes, sir. How long did it take me to write Roots altogether? Twelve years is literally true, but I hasten to say when I do that, that the reason it took that long was not because it would have taken that long, but because I couldn't afford to just keep researching steady, keep writing steady. The writing I did pretty much, not steady, but much, at a much better pace than the researching, I didn't, I would be broke and I'd have to stop and go do something, you know, I'd write magazine articles or something to make some money to go do the next phase of research. And in that way, it took 12 years. Uh, if I guess if, if, if I could have just gone straight ahead or something. You know, it's kind of funny. Danielle and I were talking this afternoon. At some point in our lives, back yonder, both of us applied for a grant from a foundation. We found out we had never even mentioned that till this afternoon. She applied. What, who did you apply to? National Endowment for 5000 They didn't give it to her, and I applied to Guggenheim for 5000 They didn't give it to me. And, and, uh, and uh, we were both just trying to get help to do something we were trying to do. Now, and I know Lou and I have talked about this thing about, I could have, had I had the money, probably could have written Roots in half the time or less. But I think it was meant to be that the book came out when it did because the timing is always so vital. And I don't think Roots could possibly have come out in a better timing situation. Everything seemed to be working for it. We'd been through the 60s. It was 1976 when it came out. Um, The book was, you know, it was just responded to in this country, than abroad. As a matter of fact, I was telling someone this afternoon, three weeks ago, the 40th translation came in. Arabic. Yeah. Yeah, brother, you got something. By what? You mean hoboes? You you wouldn't jump on the Panama Limited if you had any sense. You'd never you'd never make it. Many hoboes came through Henning, but um, they were on freight trains, not 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 those cracked passenger trains. They went too fast. When they by the time they got to Henning, they were blurring in speed. Hmm. Yes, sir. Could you stand, please? I can't. Jesus, been that long? (laughs) Damn let me take your questions in reverse order. I think, I don't know if everybody here, but the young man is asking, what influence did the writings of Dr. Martin Luther King have on my writing? None that I know of, to tell you the truth. Uh, uh, and I really, you know, I, I just don't know that they had any. I, I I never paid that, and I say there's no denigration of him in the slightest, obviously, but I never was that aware of his writing, to tell you the truth. Um, Uh, And then you say, what was his reaction to Malcolm X in Vafer? Malcolm X reaction to Dr. King. Well, I can tell you that both of their reaction to each other. I was interviewing Malcolm X for the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, it later turned out to be, when I got an assignment from Playboy to interview Dr. King for Playboy. Now, the populist image was that they were totally opposite camps, never the twain shall meet, so forth. And Malcolm was testy, to put it mildly, when I left New York to go to Atlanta to interview Dr. King. Now, Dr. King, meanwhile, knew what I was doing with Malcolm. When I would get to Atlanta, Dr. King had a lower, uh, lower uh, uh, manner about it, you know, lower-keyed manner about it. He would sort of talk around about various things, and then he would kind of just Obliquely, as if he just happened to think of it, say, oh, by the way, what's Brother Malcolm saying about me these days? You know, something like that. And I'd say something innocuous, some other, because you don't we ever get in a trap like that. In fact, he hadn't said anything of any consequence about it. And then when I'd finally go back to New York, Malcolm, who had a much more trigger personality, uh, would pace the floor. And I wouldn't say anything. I'm sitting around and finally Malcolm just, what do you say? That'd be his number one question. And I'd give him some binoculars. And what always intrigued me about the two men was to reflect for myself how easily either of them, given the background of the other, might have been that other. If Dr. King had been reared as Malcolm was, in the places that Malcolm was, exposed to the things that Malcolm was, he would have been or could so easily have been, uh, you know, the, the hustler. Everything that Malcolm was, the same thing. And without any question, Malcolm, with his innate acumen and abilities, give him Morehouse College, uh, Boston University, the School of Theology, and so forth, and imagine what he would have turned out to be with his eloquence and so forth. That used to always intrigue me. The two men intrigued me. When you get in this area, I'll supply it just a little. I'm often asked about, you know, influences. People often ask, didn't Malcolm influence roots of me? Uh, not directly, but I'll tell you one thing that did happen. The autobiography of Malcolm X helped me a lot because... Uh, Malcolm was hated at the time I wrote that book. Pretty widely hated. Not just among whites, but a lot of blacks. Fear leads to hate. That's, you know, a general thing. and. When the book was written, I was very struck by how many, when the book was published, I, I should say, by how many letters came in. Now are you show sure these, i take on lots of them to we'd look at them. Uh, letters would come in from readers and it was almost like carbon copy. The first sentence or two would almost invariably identify the writer as white. The next sentence or two would establish that they had earlier intensely, or if to some degree, disliked Blacks. From intensely to just mildly, you know. Then the next sentence or so would establish, I recently read your book, The Autobiography of Malcolm X. And then there was two almost, sentences almost uncanny in their repetitiveness. Following that, it would be something like, I never knew, I was never aware, And what they had reference to was like the black experience. Or they would say, I wish I could have met him. Now what that taught me was that here was a man who was hated, but that somehow this book had almost disarmed people's hostility toward him and made them understand him. And what I began to realize was what had done it was that I had just by chance had opened the book up with a fetus. The first line, I think, is when my mother was pregnant with me. Malcolm, you can't be mad at a fetus. (laughs) You know, you can't be mad at a little baby. And then I had just, without really planning to do it, but just because it chronologically worked out well to do it that way, I just followed him, little boy, on up. The little precocious kid in school in Mason, Michigan. The kid who wanted to be a lawyer and whose advisor and whose class he was an A student. Told him, look, uh, that's ridiculous. Uh, A lawyer is ridiculous for somebody in your race wanting to be... You're good in workshop with your hands. Why don't you be a carpenter? You see how popular you are here, so that means white people will give you plenty of work as a carpenter. And that was what caused him to drop out of school, this A student, and go to Boston. And he went right into the school of the street, hustling, marijuana, uh, tricks, slickery. And then after he got his B.A. there, he moved on to get his M.A. in Harlem. Heroin now, and prostitution, and so forth and on, and before he was 21 years old, he stood before a judge and heard a judge, tell him 10 years, and then in prison, uh, always wanting to be somebody, became so evil by his own admission that men twice his age, old enough to be his father, nicknamed him Satan. And the jailers wanted to kill him. He was so, you know, difficult. And he was clever. He was wit. I remember one of his things. He said there was this one jailer he knew was going to kill him. The first opportunity he got. And Malcolm said he knew the only way he could do to save his life was outthink that man. Because that man had everything going. Malcolm was a prisoner. He had nothing. The man had guns. He had law on his side. He had authority. He had everything. All he needed was the right setting to do it cleanly, uh, with some justification, and he said he waited one day, the man's walking down the corridor, lunchtime, other prisoners in their cells eating, and Malcolm said he moved up to the front of his cell, took his tin tray, and just as the guy was walking down, he took his tray and turned it sideways and pitched it through the bars, and it went in with a great clatter, right in from the man's feet. Everybody jumped up, the other prisoners, Said the guy turned beet red. He was furious. Malcolm said, I knew you were ready to kill me. He op- The guy opened the cell door, came in. Malcolm said he grabbed him right in the collar. Twisted. The, the man grabbed him that way. And Malcolm said, I knew I'd had it. But he, then he played. He said, I had to play my card in what I'd hoped for. Said, I only wanted him to get close enough that I could tell him something under, under my breath. And Malcolm said, when the guy had him like that, said he squeezed it out of his mouth and told him, said, look, that if you put another hand on me, say, I'm going to start a rumor, you're a black passing for white. And he said that guy let him loose and backed off from him, stared at him, and backed out of the cell, and never looked in his direction again, <laughs> and so forth. It was just, just using psychology and using the social things that they are to be used for their values, you know, and things like that. And that was the kind of man that, that he was. He was a very clever, cultured-in-his-way man. And I found that the trick had been to use the fetus and start from the fetus, and then the reader understands how he got, how he got. That's why they wrote the letters. And that's what caused me, in Roots, to start with the baby born Kunta Kinte. And then you can't be mad at the little baby, and you tell the culture around the baby, and so forth and so on. And for what it, I think, kind of tended to do, I know it did it for me, was there's a controversy in scholarly circles that deal with such things. Were there five million Africans made slaves, with 10 million, 20 million? Who cares? What difference does it make? Is it any different, If it, is it any less of a, an atrocity? Whichever way. But none of us can really understand when you talk about five million slaves. Or one million slaves. You can't conceive what that is. None of us can. But what I found was if you could start with one baby and let that baby grow up and let him be a little boy and you sort of watch him play and you watch him laugh and you watch him learn things from his grandmother, sing with his mother and this and that and the other. And you watch him every day of his life and you're with him and you know all he's ever done and you with him on up till he's about Sixteen, and you find he's a little boy pretty much like your brother, or pretty much like you were. And then one day he goes out to cut some wood to make a drum for his brother, and he hears a twig crack, and he whirls, and he looks, and somebody grabs him. And they throw chains on him and drop him in the hold of a ship. At that moment, slavery is no longer an abstract five million nameless, faceless creatures. Slavery is the boy you knew slavery was Kunta Kinte. At least it was that way to me and readers tended to, to reflect. So that's what I learned from one book to another was start with a baby and build from there. Okay. Okay. Thank you. He's got a question. Which do I feel comfortable about? I feel comfortable about both. Okay. (laughs) I'm sure that you join me and the staff of the Writers' Conference in being most thankful that we've had Alex Haley back again and most grateful to him for a truly memorable evening. May we have a big round of applause. Please, before, in in, in telling you about tomorrow, I neglected to tell you uh, that one of our features in the morning is Marilee Zedenek in here at 11 o'clock talking about the right brain experience in creation.